0: God's Word is filled with stories of families, and it minces no words about the realities of them. Jealousy, affairs, hatred, tension, loneliness. But if we're honest, sometimes it's hard to identify with the families of the Bible. After all, most people have never had an affair that led to a murder like David, then sold into slavery like Joseph or have been cursed by their grandfather, like Noah's grandson, Canaan. It's easy to believe that you have nothing in common with the families of the Bible, but that is far from the truth. The truth about every family, in the Bible and in this church, is that they are all broken because of sin. So although the thread of brokenness may run through your family in a different way than it did for Abraham or Moses or David, the fact remains, we are broken. But our hope as believers is not that we are wise or strong enough to unravel the messes that exist within our homes, but that we have an uncommon God that breaks into the context of our homes and can bring beauty from brokenness.
1: Amen. Well, good morning. Would you take your Bible out? We're going to be in Genesis chapter 25. If you are here last week, we talked about the story of Hagar uh, and how God sees the unseen. He remembers those who have been forgotten. He names the nameless and he is near to us and does not abandon us, nor does he know how to. And today, we are going to be looking at another patriarch's life. Last week, we looked at the life of Abraham and Sarai, but it was Hagar's story, right? But this week, we look at Isaac and Rebekah and their two children, Jacob and Esau. And we're going to be looking at more than just chapter 25. I want to look at the whole arc of Jacob's life, but chapter 25 will give us some good context to work with. So turn with me right now, and would you read with me? Starting in verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramaean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, "'If it is thus, why is this happening to me?' So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, "'Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger.' When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand, holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob you got to work a little harder than the next guy. Be a little smarter if you want to survive. you got to move a little faster than the last time. Know just what you're after and never look behind. you got to look out for number one. This is really the story and the thrust of Jacob's life, is that he looks out for number one. Now, this story starts out in a similar way that our story last week did. You have a patriarch. Isaac, in this case, last week we saw Abraham. And they are the people of promise. They are the covenant couple who God has said, you will be the father of many nations. All nations will be blessed by you. Takes Abraham out and says, look at the sky. Your descendants will be like the stars. But there is a problem. His wife, who you need for babies, is barren. And our story starts out in a similar way. You have Isaac, who is 40 and takes a wife, and his wife is again barren. Rebekah has no children. And so Isaac, though, has learned from his father, apparently. He has seen the mess that they made with the life of Hagar, how they took this slave girl who was nameless and forgotten and gave her over to Abraham to begin to have the children of promise, or so they thought. But Isaac learned. He saw the mess that unraveled there. And instead of taking matters into his own hands, Isaac seeks the Lord, and the Lord answers, albeit not even ten years, but twenty. They wait, and they wait, and they pray, and they pray, and finally the Lord answers. But we miss that, right? When you read the text, it just says Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, and God answered. But in between the comma and God answered, there is twenty years. But Isaac had learned from his father. To not repeat that mistake. But Rebecca sees another problem. She, ha- she is with child. And these babies are grappling inside of her. Now, Angelina is pregnant, right? S- further on in the pregnancy, you're going to see like the little foot. You know what I'm talking about? Push out on the stomach. So like babies kicking is a normal thing. But there is something wildly abnormal about these two children that are within her. Now in verse 22, if you look, it says that the children struggled within her, which kind of gives us like this idea of maybe like wrestling, grappling, but the Hebrew word is, is much more violent than struggling. It means to crush or to break or to bruise, right? There is a reason that Rebecca says, why is this happening to me? It's because these are not normal kicks. These boys are throwing haymakers at each other in the womb. This is abnormal movement for babies. And this is our foundation. The Lord is trying to tell us something, not just about Jacob and Esau, but of their descendants, the two nations in her womb that would be divided. That's what this story is about. It's about division. Jacob would become Israel the father of Israel as we know it today, the ethnic nation, God's chosen people. And Esau would become the father of Edom, a nation who uh, at their best was a, a passive frenemy to Israel and at their worst was an actual enemy, pitted against them. And eventually, because of their adversarial nature with the nation of Israel, God would judge them and destroy them. But before they were nations, they were just two brothers contending in the womb. And this sets the stage for their lives. Lives, not just nations, but two brothers pitted against one another. Contention, enmity, division, war, and not peace. This is what this story is about. And so you have these two brothers. And the first that emerges is Esau. He is the firstborn comes out hairy and red, like he's you know, wearing like a wool coat. And he becomes a hunter, a man of the field. And so the way that you can think about Esau is like he's a man's man. like He's the guy. He's a jock. He's a hunter. He is the favorite of his father, which you can imagine what that does to the psyche of the younger brother who knows that he is not favored by his own dad. The Bible portrays him as a manly man, but also kind of portrays him like a Neanderthal. He is short-sighted. He is carnal. He is worldly. He is violent. He makes irrational decisions that make no sense to you and I. And then you have his younger brother, Jacob, second born by just a few seconds, gentle, quiet, works in the tents. He's a mama's boy. That's what Jacob is. He's a mama's boy. Rebecca loves him because he works in the tent. He cooks and he cleans. But at his birth, there is a peculiar that happens. When he emerges from the womb, he is grabbing on with all of his baby might to Esau's heel. And what he's doing in this moment is he is trying to climb over his brother. He wants to be first. He wants to be blessed. He wants to be served. He wants to be number one. He is the heel grabber. And in fact, that's what his name means. Heel grabber, usurper, trying to climb over his brother, and this sets the stage for his life. This is the thrust of Jacob's entire life. He wants what Esau has, and he's willing to take it any way he can. At great cost to Esau, at great cost to himself, and at great cost to the fabric of his entire family. So let's talk about this heel grabber. Because we can point to in Scripture to two different instances, and you're probably very familiar with them if you've been in church for any amount of time. And the first comes right after the story of their birth. They grow up. Esau's, right, he's the man's man. Jacob is working in the tents, cleaning, cooking, and he has this red stew, like this red lentil stew. And Esau comes home from a day of failing to hunt. He has nothing to show for his work, and he is... Famished and right, who else makes horrible decisions when they're hungry? Me, right? All of you, like we have a word for it hangry. We make bad decisions when there's a rumble in our stomachs. And so Esau comes home and he smells the stew. And you know, okay, so actually, in our Bibles, just a funny little side note, I want you to look with me just because I think it's hilarious. Um, so take a look at verse 29, chapter 25. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came home from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Now, Esau seems like a pretty put together guy. This seems like a night he puts the request together well. But like I said, the Bible portrays him as a Neanderthal. And our translators like to clean stuff up so that it makes more sense to us. In your Bible, he says, let me eat some of that red stew. For I am exhausted. In the Hebrew, he says, me gulp down the red red. (laughs) Neanderthal, right? He's so hungry, he talks like a Neanderthal, he's short-sighted, and like a loving brother, Jacob sells him the red red. For what? For his birthright. And his birthright is a special right given to the firstborn, and it entitled him to at least half of his father's inheritance. And just like that, without a, without a thought, he trades it away for a bowl of soup. And in fact, the, the way the Bible portrays it, it's like he just gulped it down, got up and left. He didn't even think, didn't even consider what he just gave away. Like right? In this moment, Esau has no regard for his birthright. And the text says that he actually despises it or holds it in contempt or has no reverence for what he just gave away in exchange for a full stomach. And that's the first, the first time we see some usurping, some heel grabbing. Taking what is Esau's because he wants it. But the second time is later on in their lives. Isaac is getting old. He's blind. He knows that his time is short. And so he calls his favorite, Esau, to himself. And of course, because the birthright just wasn't enough, Didn't satisfy Jacob's internal longing to grab a heel, to pull himself over Esau, because the first thing wasn't enough. He seeks to steal Esau's blessing as well. Again, a high honor belonging to the firstborn. They were words of encouragement. They were words of inheritance. And they were even prophetic words for the future. We see that many times in the book of Genesis. And so Jacob, the con man, without getting too deep into the weeds, with the help of his mother, steals Esau's blessing by dressing up as him. His father is blind. He can't see which son this is. And so he puts on a a hairy cloak made from animal skin. And so when his father feels him, he feels like Esau and he blesses him, the wrong brother. What a snake, right? Isn't it funny? How you maybe you like watch a movie and you realize, oh, he's actually the bad guy in this story. You ever see Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Ferris Bueller is not the hero of that story. I mean, he's this punk kid who convinces his buddy to steal his dad's car and go for a joyride. And like the principal, he's the, he's the good guy, right? Can we be honest about that? Like, he's just trying to do his job. But like you grow up, you see that movie the first time, it's like Ferris Bueller, he's hilarious right? He goes on this whimsical adventure, and you think he's the hero of the story. He's not. Like, all my life, like, growing up, thought Jacob was the hero. Like, he's the good, he is not the hero here. He is, like, the villain of his own story. He is a thief. He is a snake. He is a liar. He's willing to do whatever it takes to satisfy the longing inside, to have what Esau has, what he feels like he's entitled to. And Esau, he can look at the two moments in his life where the wheels fell off, or or should I say the bomb blew up and made ruins of his life, right? It's like Jacob took the house and the kids, took the checking account and the 401k. He took it all. He didn't leave anything for Esau. He has nothing left. So let me ask you a question. What is the cost of your happiness? what's the cost of your happiness? What are you willing to lose? Who are you willing to hurt? Who needs to come at a loss so that you can have what you think is yours, what you think will ultimately make you happy? What is the cost of your happiness? Because for Jacob, he got what he wanted, didn't he? He's grabbing heels. He, he's, he's stepping on heads and cutting throats so that he can have what Esau has. Constantly grabbing at the heel. He extracted the blessing from Esau. He stole his birthright. He got what he desired. But look at the story. What did he have to give up to have it? And who did he hurt in the process? I mean, the fabric of their home is, is being torn apart by his self-centeredness. By looking out for number one, right? Esau at the end of of this story has his blessing stolen and he vows when my dad dies, I'm going to kill this guy. He's taken everything from me. Jacob is forced to go on a run to a foreign land to start a new life. Isaac, his father is grieved because his younger son has deceived him, snaked his way into receiving the blessing that did not belong to him. Likely bitter towards Rebecca for helping him. And then you have Rebecca, heartbroken as she watches her son, her favorite, walk out the door. This was the cost of Jacob's happiness. What's yours? What are you willing to lose? Who are you willing to hurt? Or if you're the Esau in this situation, who has been willing to hurt you? who has sacrificed your own highest good for their own. You know, your relationships may not look exactly like this. Your home, hope God, God forbid, your home looks like this. But if you don't see division within the walls of your home, within the walls of your marriage, your children, your grandchildren, the walls of your relationships with other people, if you don't see division, competing interests, should we put it, then you need to look closer. Show me a family who has no division and I will show you a family who's really good at lying. Why is this true? What causes this kind of division, this kind of rivalry, this kind of contention? Well, if you look with me in the book of James, the New Testament gives us a very clear answer. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Jacob desired and did not have, so he lied and he cheated and he stole. He conned his way into a blessing that didn't belong to him. And this is your nature and mine. We have corrupt hearts, corrupt hearts that look out for number one. You move on ahead and you don't look back to see the trail of tears that you leave behind. All division, all look right at me, all division is rooted in contending for your own interests. Wherever you see a fight, wherever you have an argument, somebody is sinning. Somebody is looking out for number one. When two people fight, at least one of you is sinning selfishly, if not both. Jacob ruins his family by his own selfish ambition. But the hope, of course, the sermon's not over yet, y'all. There's hope, okay? It doesn't end like this. And so I want to show you kind of the arc of Jacob's life. Now, an ancient mode of storytelling is called a chiasm. And it's a story told as a mirror image of itself right? So it's like you have A, B, B, A, or A, B, X, and X is like the point, B, A. And so it kind of mirrors itself as the story progresses. And anytime you see a chiasm in scripture, it is on purpose. And Jacob's life is intentionally structured as a chiasm. And so look with me here. You have Jacob. He begins his life in Canaan with his family. Everything's good, except he's a snake. And so he Uh, steals the birthright, steals the blessing, and he has to flee from Esau. On his way to this new land, to his uncle Laban, which is where his parents sent him to, Jacob meets God. He has a vision. Many of you might be familiar with it. It's called Jacob's Ladder, where he has a vision of a ladder that extends from earth to heaven and angels ascending and descending on it and and the God Yahweh at the top saying, I am the God of your fathers. And I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then at the center of his life is his time spent with Uncle Laban. And we'll get to that in a minute. When he leaves Laban to return to Canaan, this is where Jacob wrestles with God and gets his new name, Israel. After this, immediately after, Jacob reconciles with Esau. And at the end, it shouldn't say that, Jacob returns to Canaan. And this is the mirror of his life. And the center of a chiasm is the point, right? It's the thrust of the passage. It's what the author is trying to get across to you. And so we have to ask the question, what happened when he spent 20 years with Uncle Laban? Because it's the center. It's the point. So Jacob screws over his brother, grabs his heel, steals everything that he has to look forward to. And his parents send him to Uncle Laban. So the question remains, why is that at the center? Well, it's because Jacob initially gets a warm welcome from Uncle Laban. Embraces him, hugs him, welcomes him, gives him a seat at his table, but the warm welcome doesn't last. And it is in the context of these 20 years that the con man gets conned. That the liar gets lied to. That the thief gets things stolen from him. It is in Laban's house that Jacob learns what it feels like to be on the other side of the long con. And he gets conned over and over again. He gets stolen from over and over again, and yet he was prosperous beyond measure. So a couple stories from his life. He wants to marry Rachel, Laban's daughter. And they strike him an agreement. Work for me seven years, you can marry this girl. But then Laban does like the bait and switch, and he marries Laban's first daughter, Leah, who he was not attracted to, who he did not want to marry. And then he gets conned into another seven years of work to marry the girl that he actually wanted to. He's treated unfairly. His wages get changed 10 different times. He is cheated in his earnings. And so the question, why is this central to the story of Jacob's life? What is God up to? Why is this the point? Well, it's because here that Jacob begins to transform it's, it's being on the other end of selfishness that Jacob learned a couple valuable lessons. The first was humility. His time with Laban began to humble him to feel the way that Esau must have felt. But the second thing he learned, second thing that this transformed him into, it transformed him into a man who began to have his eyes open to the grace of God. Right? He continued to be cheated and scammed by his uncle and yet continued to be prosperous at, at, because he didn't earn anything. God was just kind to him. Right? He began to recognize that true prosperity, true happiness cannot be conned or stolen or bought, but can only be graciously extended by the hand of our gracious God. And so, At the end of his time with Laban, God calls him to leave and to return to Canaan, where you know it, he has to face the skeletons that he left in his closet 20 years ago when he left, the family that he ruined, the brother who wanted to murder him. And so you can imagine he's anxious about this. And he gets to the edge of Canaan, returning to the life that is finally catching up to him having to face the dishonesty that he sowed 20 years ago. And he sends messengers, some of his servants ahead, to bring Esau presents, right? Butter him up real nice. And then he awaits his brother's arrival in anxiety and fear. And as he waits for his brother, someone else arrives first. And Jacob begins to wrestle with a man that he did not know. All night long. This story is kind of confusing, though, right? right? Jacob's just kind of waiting there, and like some dude just comes up and starts grappling with him. Like out of nowhere, he doesn't identify himself or anything. Like he just starts like throwing punches or something. Like I don't know how it completely worked itself out, but here's the point of it. After 20 years of being on the other side of a selfish conniving con man, God brings Jacob to the end of himself. which is maybe the most kind thing that God can do. It's a fight that he can't win. It's a person he can't overcome. It's a blessing that he cannot con his way into. It's something he can't overcome on his own power and strength. And at daybreak, the man says to let him go. And Jacob, with no strength left, probably just hanging on around his neck, refusing to let go begs for a blessing at daybreak jacob's hip is touched by this man and put out a socket and recognizing now that this man is no man at all arms wrapped around this theophany remember that word from last week a manifestation of the presence of god before christ And in the presence of this theophany, holding on with every ounce of strength he has left, he begs for a blessing that he could not earn. And by God's grace alone, he is given one, a new name, Israel, which means contends with God or wrestles with God. And the man says it's because he has wrestled with man and with God, and he has overcome. Now, this is strange to me, because when I look at that fight, when you're begging for a blessing... (laughs) just hanging on because your hip is out of socket, that doesn't look like a win to me. It doesn't look like he overcame God. And yet he did overcome in the sense that he received the blessing of a new name, a new future, pregnant with promise. In fact, before this mysterious man gives Jacob the blessing, he asks him, what is your name? And it's not because God didn't know. It's because he wanted Jacob to remind himself of who he was in the past. A heel grabber, a usurper, a conniver, a liar, a cheat, deceitful, a snake. And with a change of a name comes the change of a future. He is no longer the heel grabber. He is the overcomer. He's no longer a con man. He is brought to the end of himself, and he is formed into a new man, humbled by the grace and unmerited favor of God. And this is exactly what he tells Esau when he arrives. So take a look with me. Genesis chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. Now, mind you, this is right after he got absolutely humbled by the touch of man who put his hip out of socket he has no chance to escape and Esau is approaching with what looks like an army so he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants and he put the servants with their children in front and then Leah with all her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all he himself went on before them bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother does this look like a changed man so far But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I've met? Jacob answered to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. See how he gives the blessing back? Because God has dealt with. Graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. I want you to notice the language and even the body posture that Jacob uses. He bows down seven times to the, to the man that he used to heel grab, that he used to try to step over to get what he wanted. He calls Esau my lord, and, and he calls himself your servant. He presents his family and, and gives gifts to Esau for his favor. For his grace. And he points to God's graciousness as the basis for everything that he has. It's not something that he is heel grabbed for. He hasn't stepped on anybody's heads. This is something that God has given him and he is far more satisfied and he is a changed man. He is recognizing his fault by asking for grace. And he's recognizing that every good thing that he had came not through his striving or through his earning or through his heel grabbing but by the gracious hand of a gracious God. And this is the arc of Jacob's life. He goes from a con man to a conned man to a changed man. So much so that he is able to do what he was never able to do before. He was able to let go of Esau's heel. The heel that he sought to extract blessing from happiness from he finally lets go and it's in this humility that he is able to restore their brotherhood because jacob is finally able to see the grace of god in his life and one of the main thrusts of the gospels we look at what jesus did on the cross is not just salvation being reconciled to god but also being reconciled to one another this is one of the main calls on our lives. It's splattered all throughout the New Testament. Be reconciled to one another. Forgive one another. Make peace with those that we have problems with. Unity, restoration with those who we have heel-grabbed and those who have heel-grabbed us. Right? This is what Romans 12 says. It says, so far as it's in your hands... Live at peace with everyone. So the question then is how do we get there? And and I'm calling this two threads to restitch. Right? You have you been torn apart from another person? Family been torn apart, marriage has been torn apart, you and a wayward child. So two threads to restitch. The first is humility, and the second Is sovereignty. Humility is what's in your hands, and sovereignty is what is in God's. But both are essential if you want to reconcile with others. First, humility. Jacob was humbled by the hand of God. That's a hard lesson to learn. But there's an invitation in Scripture to humble yourself. Don't wait for God to humble you, humble yourself. Get there first. It is a far easier lesson to learn when you humble yourself than when you wait to be humbled by the hand of God because his hand is heavy. See, Jacob's issue, our issue, I would argue, is that he sought to lift himself up, right? He's the heel grabber. He wants to climb over Esau by his own strength to satisfy the longings of his crooked heart. He does not have, so he will lie. He wants but cannot attain, so he's going to cheat. He is going to do everything in his own power to gain what he thinks belongs to him. And our solution, what's presented to us in scripture, is that you would humble yourself up and God will lift you up. You don't have to lift yourself up. You don't have to try to attain the blessing that you think is owed to you. Because if you humble yourself under the hand of God, he will lift you up. In fact, at the end of that passage in James that we started, verse 10, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You don't have to wait to be humbled like Jacob was. Look to the example of Christ and how he reconciled us to God. Isn't this what Philippians chapter 2 is all about? How the God-man, Jesus Christ, humbled himself, made himself as nothing, emptied himself, humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross, and because of his humility, God exalted him. That's the message of Philippians 2 is that the God-man humbled himself and the Father exalted him to a name that is above every other name. Understand this today. The happiness, the fulfillment that you strive for, that you struggle for, that you contend for, that you are willing to hurt others in order to get, God would give to you freely if you would humble yourself under him. Right? This, this, these are the two bookends of Jacob's life, contending, striving to receive a blessing that ends up blowing up his entire family, and at the end, recognizing the blessing that he had in God was far greater than anything he had cheated his way into. We seek to extract, let me use that word, extract, pull it from somebody else but these people, the people in your lives, the people in your home are unable to give you the deepest longings of your soul, right? It's like you get married day one, right? It's like, this is the person of my dreams. They will make all of my childhood dreams come true. And then you get a couple years in and it's like, I can't stand the way this person brushes their teeth, right? just like, You find things to have problems with and all of a sudden like this person is not fulfilling you the way that you thought it would. Didn't fix all your problems like you thought it might. And you wanna know why? It's because your spouse was not designed to fulfill you. Your children were not given to you to fulfill your deepest happiness. And we wonder why isn't this person making me happy like they're supposed to? It's because they weren't meant to. Like, if you have tension in your home, your marriage, your family, the way to eliminate it is by recognizing that only God can give you what you're seeking from another person. Right? They are not the. Look at me. The people in your life are not the fount of every blessing, God is. Christ is. He is the fount from which all blessings flow. Your spouse, your husband, your wife, your children, your grandchildren are not the fount of every blessing. And if you try to extract it from them, you are going to abuse them in the process by grabbing onto their heel and trying to take something that they don't have to give you. Know this this morning. There is more blessing for you in Christ than what you can get from your own contending and it's available, and he would give it to you freely if you would humble yourself. Stop striving. Stop contending. Stop trying to get blessing from other people, and go to the headwaters. Go to the fount. This is your part, humility. But there's another part of reconciliation that really has nothing to do with you which is sovereignty. Now, I, I just before we wrap up here, we cannot ignore the missing piece of this story. Esau. What happened there? Right? It's like we see the story of Jacob. He's a conniver, and then he gets connived, and then he wrestles with God and is humbled, realizes the grace of God upon his life, and he's a changed man. Esau, it's like the last time you see him, he's got murder on his heart, wants to kill his brother. What happened in those 20 years to Esau? We never get rhyme or reason for why he received Jacob the way he did or why he showed up with 400 dudes. Like, that seems like an intimidation thing, but we never see his heart change. We see the result. We see what happened ultimately, but we have no idea what happened in these 20 years. And maybe that's the point, that God did something in the unknown. In the pages of the Bible that don't exist. Something happened to Esau. He was a real person who really wanted to kill his brother. And 20 years later, he is weeping as they embrace each other. How did that happen? We don't know. It was under the reign and rule of a sovereign God that it happened. That's the answer. There's a lot of white on the pages of your Bible. God did something in that. We don't know. which tells me that our hope for reconciliation, because reconciliation requires two people, right? At least two people. To repair a relationship requires two. Our hope for reconciliation rests fully in the hands of a gracious God and a sovereign God. Proverbs 21 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. God in his sovereignty is able to turn a heart towards reconciliation against all odds. Like the person that you have the deepest problems with, who you have hurt or has hurt you deeply. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that you ask or think. He is able to turn a heart towards reconciliation. And that might sound like bad news, like you have no control over this thing, like you can't force a person to want to reconcile with you. But ultimately, our hope is in the grace of Jesus, who is able to unite those who are once at war into unity and peace. Right, this is what the book of Ephesians talks about in chapter two, where it says that he himself is our Peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And it's not hostility between us and God. No. Paul's talking about the hostility be between me and you. Between you and your heel grabber or the person whose heel you've grabbed. God is able, but he does something in the mystery which is why our relationships, our need for reconciliation, our call towards reconciliation, you can do your part in humbling yourself. Do what Jacob did. Sought grace, sought favor, apologized, repented, restored. But there's part of reconciliation that has nothing to do with what you have to offer and has everything to do with the God who holds a heart in his hand like a stream of water and can turn it whichever way he wills. Here's our hope today. Is that in your home, in your marriage, in your family, with your parents, with your children, your grandchildren? Even if you you don't have anybody close to you, your friendships that have blown up in your face is that Jesus can restitch Your ruins. The God who humbled himself even to the point of death. Can by his grace restitch. Restore. Heal. All that you have broken. And all that has been broken in you. Jesus who deals graciously with sinners. Like you and me. Is able to give you humility. To stop grabbing heels. And instead to grab onto him onto his grace, onto his blessing, and is able to turn a heart towards reconciliation. This is our God. This is our hope. This is our calling. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of your son Jesus who humbled himself to the point of death that you would exalt him. Lord, I pray for our hearts here Lord, that if we are willing to step on other people's heads, to grab other people's heels, to pull ourselves up, to extract blessing from them. Lord, I pray that you would turn our hearts away from that and turn our hearts towards you, who is the fount of every good thing, that you are the father of the heavenly lights in whom there is no change or shifting shadow. Lord, help us to hold on to you as Jacob did around your neck and seek a blessing that you can give out of the fullness of your storehouses. Lord, out of the abundance of all that you have, Lord, bless us in such a way that we no longer need to take it from other people. Help us to humble ourselves. And Lord, we pray for those who we have made enemies of, people in our own homes, close friends, those whom we have burned bridges with. We pray for our own hearts. Give us humility. Lord, we pray for their hearts. We ask that you would sovereignly turn their hearts towards reconciliation. You can do it as you did with Esau. But Lord, I pray that we as a people, as your people, would take the charge seriously to live at peace with all as it's as far as it's within our power. And we leave the rest to you. But Lord, help us to take reconciliation as seriously as Christ did and his proof, the cross. Help us to humble ourselves. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name.
2: Amen. What an encouraging message, a reminder God's word. The humility and God's sovereignty that Jesus really can and he does restitch our ruins and so how we respond to that you know, it's one thing to know it but we want to have reconciliation and healing and that's why god invites us not just to know these things but to follow after him and so with that i encourage you take out your connection cards on the back side that's why we have this, some next steps some ways to be able to invite that uh, god's truth into your life maybe those areas that are broken and, and so, on the back side there you're going to see the very first thing that we're inviting you to do this week is to memorize ephesians 320 through 21 A reminder that, you know, nothing is hopeless when we have God, eh? That he can do the impossible. In fact, that's what he does all the time. And maybe you need to remember that so you don't give up hope. I I encourage you, if you haven't, take a time. Maybe that's your next step this week. Say, you know, I'm going to put God's word in my heart. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to let God's word begin to convince me of the truth that he can do abundantly more than even I know how to ask. Something else that you might want to do is is to really get into the Word on this. Read James 4, 1 through 11. That reminder of where are these troubles coming from? It's important for us to to know where the problem is so we know how to ask God to fix it. James 4 really gives us that. I mean, that's what you spend some time with this week. And don't just read that. Really think about how is this applying in my life and the areas that we have difficulty. Uh, Something else we invite you to do, it's on there, is to humble yourself and to reconcile. And that's if you're at that place. You know that maybe you've been the heel grabber, right? Or maybe you know that somebody else who's done that to you is willing and ready. They want to be forgiven, but you just haven't been willing to forgive quite yet. Well, let me invite you. Don't continue to live in brokenness. Let God be able to stitch together those areas. It's going to require humility. They say, I'm going to forgive, or I'm going to ask for forgiveness. Maybe that is your challenge this week. And wrestle with God in this one a little bit, but make that commitment. And the last one, I think this is a, it's a pretty good one. It's a reminder of God's sovereignty. Isn't it wonderful that it's not up to us to change people? That we do our part, but then God also does his. And so is to pray. In the unknown, let God work in other people. Somebody's really hurt, you pray for them. That's why Jesus says, pray for our enemies. And maybe that's your commitment this week is to really be praying for God to be changing your heart as well as the hearts of those that you are at odds with. Of course, there is something else that maybe the Holy Spirit is telling you to do as your pastor. I want to support you in that. We want to encourage you. Let me know what it is. Make that commitment. Write it down on there. And then uh, here in a moment, we're going to take our offering. And I invite you to take these connection cards. and. Drop them in the offering basket as it's passed, along with your tithes and your gifts, right? But make this your first step of that healing uh, this week. All right, let me pray for you as you make these commitments. Father God, we thank you that in this broken world that you, uh, uh, you don't leave us just broken. Uh, but Father, you are a God of reconciliation, of hope and peace. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful reminder that with humility and, of course, with who you are, in your sovereignty, that good things happen. That even reminded in your word uh, that you're working everything together for our good, but also for your glory. Father, I pray this week help us to be as your people to respond to this well. Whether it's memorizing your word or getting into the scripture as it reveals to us uh, how we could walk closer to you, or if it's, or if it's for us to express that humility, or if it's just going to you and asking for your help that you would work in and through us in all of these things. Um, yeah, make a beauty in the ashes of our lives for your glory. Father, take these commitments, these prayer requests, these tithes, these offerings, all of them, Lord, as an expression of our faith in you, our love for you. And Father, that you would build your kingdom through these for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.